This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Welcome to the April episode of TSC Now. I'm your host, Dan Klein. Our thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Greenwich Biosciences, Novartis Pharmaceuticals, Smith Laboratories, and Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. In this episode, I'll do a deep dive on the ongoing COVID-19 crisis and its impact on the TSC community. As you may know, for the last month, the TS Alliance has been working nonstop to develop resources to support those with TSC and their families while they are sheltering at home during the pandemic. These include webinars, town halls where we partner with other advocacy organizations to tackle broader issues such as access to medication and care, and open forums, which are spaces where you can connect with others. We've covered topics like distance education, coping with stress and anxiety, behavior intervention, and more, while also connecting you with some of the most prominent physicians and researchers in TSC. We have also developed an AFAQ on the virus and resources for physicians, all while continuing to monitor and address any medication access issues that could impact those with TSC. You can find all of these resources on our website at tsalliance.org COVID-19. Throughout this episode, I will be highlighting clips from some of our recent webinars. The video recordings of these webinars are available on our website and on our YouTube channel. I'll include a link in the show description to the recordings. This first clip is from the very first town hall held in partnership with the Lamb Foundation, titled TSC and Lamb Virtual Town Hall, a COVID-19 Update. This town hall featured presentations from Drs. Peter Crino, Frank McCormick, Darcy Kruger, and John Bissler, who all shared their considerations for the impact of COVID-19 on the management of TSC and Lamb. Here's Dr. Crino sharing his advice for those with TSC. I think it's important not to panic, but to have a healthy respect for the gravity of this virus. It has moved very rapidly. Lots and lots of people have gotten infected. Uh, Most people get over this virus and do fine, but a number of people have had difficult times. So stay in close contact with your TSC physicians, stay healthy, get lots of sleep, uh, practice social distancing very rigorously, wash your hands. uh, And I think that's what's gonna help you ride through this pandemic uh, most effectively. That town hall was held on March 20th, and a recording is available on our website. For anyone wondering how to stay safe, I encourage you to listen to that town hall because the doctors provide excellent advice on how to avoid getting sick and what to do if you do become infected. This month, I talked to two people to better understand how COVID-19 impacts both individuals and families and TSC clinics. My first interview is with Laura Lubbers, Chief Scientific Officer at Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, also known as CURE. Laura's sister, Ellen, is an adult with TSC and was taken to the hospital earlier this month when she developed a fever and later tested positive for COVID-19. Laura shares about what that experience was like and how she helped coordinate Ellen's care remotely. Here's my conversation with Laura. We're now joined by Laura Lubbers, Chief Scientific Officer at CURE and sister to Ellen Lubbers, who is an adult with TSC. 
Laura, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Why don't you start by just telling me what happened with Ellen? Sure. So as you've already mentioned, my sister Ellen is my older sister and she's in her 50s. So an adult with TS. And it's about two weeks ago that she had a fever. She lives in a group home and everyone is checked for fevers twice a day, including staff. And she was identified as having a fever. And then they were monitoring her oxygen levels and they were starting to drop pretty quickly. And within 24 hours, it was decided that she should go to the hospital and get a better medical evaluation. So that happened. She went to the hospital and they had a chest x-ray done and it was seen that she had pneumonia and ended up in both lungs. And she was very lethargic. She was just very, very tired, very lethargic. And they decided to admit her. And that was really scary. What was that experience like for you? Were you able to visit her at the hospital? No, it was really, we're used to being such close advocates for Ellen. Uh, She's been in the hospital in the past, but we've been able to be there with her. In fact, in the times that she's been in the hospital, she's never been alone without a family member there, which means we're sleeping there. We're advocating for her. We're making sure that hospital staff know how to work with her. But in this case, it was all pretty terrifying because family members and caregivers from her residential house were not allowed to be there. And a couple of years ago, she actually had a seizure, fell and broke her hip. And so we knew what this experience could be like of her being in the hospital and how challenging it can be to get her to take her meds, have her eat. And without us there, we were really, really worried about how this was all going to go. So you mentioned some of those challenges. I'm wondering if you could elaborate just what specific challenges Ellen faces as an adult with TSC while in the hospital and with taking medication. So she, she does need a lot of support. So she has seizures and she has AMLs in her kidneys. And so she's on a Finitor for that. So she's on the immunosuppressant. And of course, she has to have her seizure medications. But getting her to take her medications can be challenging if you don't know her and if she doesn't know you. And so that was one of the challenges was getting her to take her medications. And the hospital staff initially felt like they could manage this, but as they were seeing the challenges and the need for her to take the medications, they were starting to resource my parents. And that was helpful. She also, she can be somewhat of a picky eater and she wasn't interested in eating the hospital food. And this virus also significantly impacts people's appetites. And initially, the the hospital staff were trying to manage it, but they worked out a system with my parents who live very close to try to engage them. Of course, again, my parents couldn't be there. The closest they could get was the security desk, but the hospital staff learned and my parents learned how to work together to try to get Ellen to take her medications and eat something. Just to be clear, was Ellen tested for COVID-19? Ellen was tested for COVID-19. She was initially tested for flu and that was negative. Two days later, when they were able to get a test, she was tested for COVID-19 and she was positive. So it took two days for her to get tested after being admitted into the hospital? Yes. So you weren't able to visit, but when you first heard that she had to go to the hospital, what steps did you take? What resources did you look for right away so that you can start 
advocating for her, even though you couldn't be there? Great question. We were initially just panicked. And after we got through that, we started thinking about what resources we could rely on and where we could get information, because the information in the community at the time was around how one might manage if a child goes in. But if the child goes into the hospital right now, they still have some access to parental care. But for an adult, that's not the case. So we initially reached out to find out what the constraints might be. And in fact, the TS Alliance was very helpful in getting us a perspective from the professional community that yes, indeed, these restrictions really are in place. And with a virus this contagious, there's very little that we could do as a family to be there. They also gave us important information and advice about really difficult conversations. We know in the media, we know in our country across the world, people are having to go on ventilators to support their breathing. And something that we as a family hadn't thought about was what do we do should this come up? Should we have to consider a ventilator or um, resuscitation? So getting resources and getting us to think about those questions as difficult as they are is really important so that you can be prepared because things move very fast. We also were able to very quickly engage with her medical team, which is like so many TS families across the country. We know that she's very sensitive to Affinitor. And so what do we do for her in taking this particular medication for her AMLs and her kidneys? And I was amazed. Overnight, the medical team was working on this, bringing together the different voices who are knowledgeable about TS and the local medical staff to figure out what was the right thing to do for Ellen in terms of managing her medications. So really, we sought resources. We really mobilized her medical team to get them on board, know what was happening, and then make the right choices for Ellen. You mentioned that you reached out to you know your TSC clinicians and you had the benefit of getting really great advice from doctors who are more familiar with TSC. Were the hospital staff that you were working with that were working with Ellen receptive to that advice and were they collaborative? Yes, and surprisingly, because that hadn't been our experience in the past. But I think this was taken very seriously. There was an openness to the communication between the hospital staff and the TSC specialists, our epilepsy specialists. And I want to do a shout out to our support in Cincinnati and Memphis and Northwestern hospitals. They were phenomenal, working very hard. And collectively, it did become a team. Again, hasn't always been the case, but we are delighted by it. It is so important to establish mechanisms of collaborative care for people with complex disorders like this. And so we're grateful for that openness. Did they end up making any decisions about holding off on medication while treating for COVID-19 or did she continue to take Affinitor? We did hold off on Affinitor. This had been done in her previous experience in the hospital and it was decided that because it works over a, a longer term course that she would be okay without taking it for a week's time. So the most important question, of course, how, how is Ellen doing now? Well, she's out of the hospital. She was in the hospital for the longest week ever, but she came home, but she's still struggling. This is a very difficult virus. She has been in isolation in her group home. She's still not eating very well at all. Her temperature is stable and her oxygen levels are stable. And we're grateful for that, but she's not eating very well and she's not interacting very well. Again, you know, interacting very much. Again, this virus does impact the appetite. So 
we're hoping that as she's feeling better, that will improve. She does tell her staff, I don't feel good. We know it takes a long time to recover from this virus. And I'm sure she's struggling with being in isolation. And I'm sure that's tough for both you and your family, not being able to see her. What is that like? It is. It's very hard. Ellen is a more social person and we are under this restriction right now. She's not allowed to come out of isolation until she has a negative COVID test. And the group home that she lives in has worked very closely with the local health services and has been able to find a testing facility where they can bring residents and be tested. However, they can't get it for another 12 days. And then we have to wait for the results of the test. So the testing continues to be an issue. Access to the tests, speed of the results continue to be an issue. And that slows down her re-entry to her, her life. How are you staying in contact with her? How are you, you know, checking in on her? Are you guys calling each other? How are you staying in touch? Yeah, so we learned about using FaceTime and Ellen is learning about using FaceTime. And in fact, the hospital staff started to use FaceTime to help my mom engage with Ellen and help her, you know, take her pills and eat. And so they continue now that she's in her group home to use FaceTime to interact. And Ellen is learning too. It's it's a new thing for her. She's learned how to turn it off when she's done with the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> which just delights us because at least she knows what she wants and she can express it. We do a lot of phone calls. The group home has been very good about trying to keep people connected. And it's something that is truly important and something that whether it's the hospital staff or the residential facility, you know, just making sure that those connections are strong. You talked about the difficulties getting the test. When Ellen first went to the hospital, what sort of precautions did the hospital staff take in protecting their staff and protecting her and protecting other people in the hospital. And to your knowledge, did they have the necessary personal protective equipment that they needed? They certainly seem to. This is a local hospital. It's a local suburban hospital. And I have to say I was impressed by their organization. They had dedicated two full floors of the hospital to people who might be infected with COVID. It was by no means full, but they were prepared. They had the PPE that they needed. They had strict policies in place about who could be there. And essentially that was no one, but at least they had responded very quickly to pull those policies in place. They did allow us to bring things to the hospital, for example, food that Ellen might eat or something that might give her comfort, but everybody was stopped at the security desk. That's where things were dropped off. And even the person who was dropping off had to have a temperature check done. Even though they weren't even going into the hospital, they were really monitoring who was coming in and out. So they did seem to have some very good policies in place to protect the hospital staff, any patients that might be there. I think, you know, conditions are quite different across the country. And it depends on, on many different factors and how many patients are being seen in a hospital certainly, I think, contributes. How did this whole experience for you differ from what you might have expected? And how has it changed how you've thought about COVID-19 pandemic in general? Yeah, well, I think it's highlighted how serious this is. Ellen lives in a group home that has been in lockdown for three weeks prior to her getting sick. Staff were being checked twice a day. Residents were being checked twice a day for temperatures. No one else in the house has gotten sick and no staff have been sick. So how this virus got into the house 
to infect Ellen is still a mystery. We're so grateful that nobody else has gotten sick, but it does highlight how contagious this is and how variable it is and how we don't know who might have been exposed and who might expose us. So the personal protections that we have right now are really important to adhere to just to make sure that everybody is safe and particularly those who are fragile among us. So it certainly opened my eyes to how challenging this is. And I've actually worked in infectious diseases and have never seen anything as challenging as this one. So it certainly changed my perception around viruses and what they can do. And I guess finally, what advice would you give to other caretakers of individuals with TSC or just to anyone who might have a loved one who starts displaying symptoms of COVID-19? Take it seriously. That's, you know, if you start to see changes, take it seriously, monitor any worsening symptoms, call your primary care doctor. If you've got a TSC medical team, alert them that this is going on. People we know care deeply about our, our community. So just letting them know this is going on. We're concerned about this. That's important. Making sure that got access to critical pieces of information like guardianship papers to establish with the hospital that yes, this is a relationship. Yes, I as the guardian am responsible for helping with some of the medical decisions, having all of that in place, having had those prior conversations about how do you manage really challenging situations? What would you do? We as a family have not talked about things like resuscitation, but I'm sure that's true for many families. We just don't like to think about that, but it's good to be thinking and preparing so that when you're in the crisis moment, like we were, you're not trying to sort that out in addition to everything else. Also know that you can advocate. We're so used to being there by our loved one's side and we are so used to helping. And this was a whole different experience of not being able to be there, but learning that you can still do it, that it's still important in other ways, using any of the different apps like FaceTime or Duo or something that allows that kind of communication because your loved one will benefit from it and hospital staff may end up appreciating it as well to just stay connected. Those are all great tips for anyone dealing with what I'm sure is a very scary situation. This is really hard. It's really scary. It's really hard to let go, but I think ultimately there are lessons that we found valuable, help us think in a different way. We need to think about as scary as it is, what we can can do to adapt, what we can do to continue to support our loved one when we can't be there holding their hand, and then find others who are willing to listen and help too. I think that's probably been one of the things that's come out of this for us. Again, it's been really scary. We hope no family has to go through this. But as we were going through this, I thought it's so important for our community to know how to manage this should they come upon it so that they're a bit more prepared than we were. Well, we absolutely appreciate you being willing to share your story, and we're glad to hear that Ellen is doing better and we're obviously hoping for a full recovery. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for everything you're doing. My sincere thanks to Laura for sharing her story and providing really important advice for parents and caregivers who find themselves coordinating care for a loved one with COVID-19. I also want to thank Cure for all their work advancing epilepsy research and providing resources and support to those affected by epilepsy. I've included a link to their COVID-19 resources in the show description. I want to reiterate that the TS Alliance is here for you. 
If you or a family member are in crisis, please do not hesitate to reach out to us for support at any time. You can call us toll free at 800-225-6872. This next clip is from a webinar hosted by Dr. Tanjala Gibson of Labonor Children's Hospital titled, Managing Anxiety During COVID-19. Think marathon, not a sprint. Um, you know, when it comes to TSC at all, you should think marathon, but especially even in this, this COVID-19 crisis, there's so much information coming to us. You know, every minute there's something new, the news feed, there's something going on. Um, but we have to try to think long-term. Focus on controlling the controllable. Um, this is key because there are so many things that are out of our control. Um, spending a lot of energy trying to focus on those uncontrollables can lead to a lot more anxiety than is necessary. Um, all we have control over is, is what is controllable, what is within our reach. The TS Alliance recognizes that these times are tough, with families and individuals dealing with working and educating from home, navigating telehealth, and coping with the loneliness that comes with social distancing. We have worked with experts in education, stress, and anxiety to offer resources and tips to help you cope during this difficult time. And I encourage you to explore all the COVID-19 related resources on our website. Please check them out. My second conversation this month is with Karen Agricola, a family nurse practitioner and coordinator at the TSC clinic at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She tells me how the clinic has adapted care during the pandemic and offers advice on how to stay safe and utilize telemedicine to maintain care. Here's my conversation with Karen. We're now joined by Karen Agricola, family nurse practitioner at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Karen, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for inviting me. So how have things changed at your clinic since the start of the pandemic? Well, so things have evolved. Early on in the pandemic, we received lots of phone calls from families. And some of the questions they may have asked was, is it safe for us to go on to our family vacation to Disney World? Or is it safe for me to attend my friend's wedding in a hotspot? And we don't get calls like that anymore. And then they sort of evolved to a child in the school district or an adult in the school district was diagnosed with COVID-19. What should I do? We don't get those calls anymore because everybody's home from school. So now most of the calls are related to questions pertaining to somebody concerned that they've been exposed to somebody with COVID or that they're sick themselves and they want advice as to know what to do. Those are a lot of our calls. As far as we've had to change strategies and we continue to do that every week as to how we work together as a team. We are seeing patients in clinic. We're not seeing them. Well, some providers are. We're doing telemedicine visits, which is the highlight of our week, I think, with all this. It's just so great to be able to connect with families and patients 
through telemedicine. And I think they're appreciative of it too. They feel safer at this point in time, having a visit in that way. There's logistical things that have to go on to get all that set up. We have additional meetings where we determine. So most of the visits that we have in clinic are telemedicine visits. Every once in a while, there might be somebody that really needs to come in for a visit because they need to have testing like an EEG or an MRI, or they really need to have a specialist look at them and see what's going on with them because they've had a change in their condition. But the default is a telemedicine visit. So what we do a week in advance now is that we look at the entire schedule, go through everybody's chart and determine if somebody needs to be a face-to-face clinic visit, because usually we want everybody to be a telemedicine visit for everybody's safety. And like I said, the ways that somebody would meet the criteria for a face-to-face visit, or like I said, if there's a change in condition or they need additional testing. But even if that is of current concern, if that person or somebody in their family is immunocompromised or if the caregiver is elderly, so is at risk for that reason, or their caregiver or parent is immunocompromised, or they come from a hotspot, or they come from a residential facility, we usually leave them a telemedicine visit. We are seeing new patients too. Those are video visits, and we've had new visits every week. Imaging and EEGs are kind of put on hold now unless they're urgent, especially imaging that requires general anesthesia because that usually requires that their anesthesia is involved and they're dealing with a patient's airway. And if they're, you know, an asymptomatic person infected with COVID, then, you know, respiratory droplets could be involved with managing the airways. EEGs and imaging are postponed. Lab work can be done for our patients, but typically we're postponing that as well. Many of our patients are on medicines where they have to get routine lab work. Anyway, we postpone that to May or June unless we feel like the results are going to be important to make a change in whatever is going on with the patient at that time to change their management plan. So I mentioned a week ahead of time, we go over the entire schedule and determine who's going to be a telemedicine visit and if anybody's going to be a face-to-face visit, which is very rare. We used to have those meetings just the day before clinic, before COVID-19, we would go through the entire schedule, but now we do it a week in advance. And then after we determine who's going to have what kind of visit, that family is called to discuss how that visit is going to occur. And logistics at that time are, are dealt with. Like, for instance, if it's a new patient, if they have capability of having a video visit. And then a medical assistant calls the family eventually to go over medication reconciliation, get a current weight, get current concerns and questions from parent to make sure that those can be addressed during that telemedicine visit. And then if they actually come in for a clinic visit, so anybody who comes in, if it's me or you or patient or family member, they are greeted with friendly nurses who are wearing masks at a table. They have you, you use hand sanitizer. They give you a mask to don promptly. And then they ask you the COVID questions and they measure your temperature. Once you're screened, they give you a sticker so everybody knows that you've been screened. And then once that patient goes to clinic, they are greeted with providers that are wearing goggles and a mask and practicing the guidelines that we've all been taught about hygiene and social distancing and being as efficient as possible with that visit to get the patient in and out 
effectively. You mentioned that most of your appointments are moving to telemedicine appointments or video appointments. How has that transition gone and how have patients liked being able to interact with their doctor at home? So the transition is involved with everybody being educated, everybody on our side being educated. There's lots of pertaining to that and lots of other things. There's a lot of emails and just things that we're reading on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day from different sources from the TS Alliance or Cincinnati Children's Institution or national recommendations that we all need to be aware of so we can be up to date and communicate effectively and confidently with our patients and families that, yes, we are giving you advice that is the same advice that everybody else would give you. So anyway, there's a lot of education and then just, you know, a little bit of anxiety before you do your first one and make sure that you do it properly. But now we're all really good at it. We have a lot of experience and I think parents and families really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed them, even though I've only been able to do audio. The kids participate in the visit and, you know, I can hear dogs barking in the background. And so you almost feel like you're visiting their family versus, you know, when they come to clinic, they're visiting you. Very artificial kind of atmosphere. Whereas with a telemedicine visit, it's an honor to participate in their family a little bit. And do you think that after we're past everything that's going on now, you'll continue to do a lot of telemedicine visits? Do you think this is something that may continue even after the end of the pandemic? So that was something that we were talking about today, probably more so than weeks past where it seems as though it is the direction that things should go. Our clinic, we have patients from all over the world. Obviously, we're not seeing anybody from, we're not even doing telemedicine visits for whatever reason, for people out of the country right now, but we have patients from all over the country. And then we have some locally. So it certainly would be nice if our patients could have telemedicine visits along with their in-person visits, just because it would just be a lot easier on them. I'm hoping that we are able to incorporate that into the care that we deliver. You mentioned that patients go through a screen. What happens if they fail that screen? What happens if they have a fever? Even before COVID, if our patients are sick, we really don't want them to come to clinic. And many of our patients, you know, especially the ones that live far away, they might have a visit that's coordinated with an MRI and radiology. They're not going to put somebody under for their MRI brain if they're sick, just because that puts them at increased risk for problems occurring. If some Somebody does screen positive, the nurses there at the kiosk, they are directed to call occupational health for the next steps. I really don't think that they would end up coming to clinic. I don't think parents would bring their sick child to clinic either. And before their visit, when the medical assistant calls to do med reconciliation and get a current weight, the other thing that they're asking, they're asking the COVID questions too. So that's days in advance. Another resource that we all pay attention to and we encourage families to pay attention to is their local health departments. So their local state, local city or county health department, as well as the national guidelines, because our patients do live all over the country and things are just very different in different areas. And then we encourage family, you know, if they're worried about them being exposed to COVID or having it themselves, then we encourage them to contact their primary care provider or their local health department for guidelines as to what to do next. When you get those phone calls from people who feel like they may have been exposed or may be showing symptoms, you're encouraging them to reach out to their primary care physician for next steps on whether to get tested and whether to come in? Right. We do not tell them to go to the PCP office. 
we advise that they call them. So you probably then haven't had anyone come into clinic who was symptomatic or who may have been positive for the disease? No, but we do have one patient. She does not live in Ohio who tested positive. And one of the things that if somebody did test positive or if they were worried that they were exposed or even before COVID, if our patient had an illness with a fever and they just weren't feeling well at all, weren't able to eat and drink like normally or be as active as normal. If they're taking an mTOR inhibitor like Rapimune or Affinitor, we advise that they hold it. And so that was the recommendation for this person who was actually diagnosed with COVID-19 and she is recovering well. Oftentimes in order to give patients and families the best advice, we talk to our specialists, especially if that patient asking for advice has lamb, we'll call or email one of our pulmonary specialists, Dr. McCormick or Dr. Gupta, and they will help us give that person the best advice. So it's really nice to be able to have their expertise. And then they'll be the ones that decide whether or not an mTOR inhibitor should be held if that person is taking one. What sort of general advice are you giving to people affected by TSC to stay safe while sheltering at home? So just the general guidelines that we're all supposed to be following as far as hygiene and social distancing. And also, especially with children, but even adults, even all of us, is that it's important to have a routine. It's a comforting thing and it helps us. It's good to know what's going to come next. And then also to build in diversions to your day, like exercise, going outside to enjoy nature. Those are the main things. And then just following the guidelines and knowing that we are there to help. And one of the most important things for us to do is when a parent or a patient calls us is to reassure them, calm them down and let them know that we are going to get them up to up to date advice and we are confident about what we're recommending and just help them to know, you know, if they need to call us every day to give us updates as to what's going on if somebody is sick in the family, that's fine. We're there for them. And how should patients manage refilling prescriptions and dealing with their medication during this time? So really that system is the same. We get refill requests from pharmacists and patients or parents might call for them or send a message, a MyTurt message that they need a refill. So what might be a little bit different is that, so for instance, if somebody was scheduled for a follow-up in March or April with and they had imaging scheduled too, and that had to be postponed, we'll just refill their medicine until they can come in for a visit or when they're a telehealth visit. So we might give them a more refills than what we typically would. We don't want them to run out of medicine. So that, that's something that's unusual. And sometimes parents are asking for 90 days instead of 30 days, which that's fine. They, it's nice when they give us directives and then we, we just do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, it's great that they're being proactive about making sure they have their medication for as long as they're going to be home. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with parents of kids with TSC or, or adults with TSC general advice? Just to follow the guidelines. I think they've obviously made a difference in, and then be careful once we get to kind of let up and we get to be more social and things like that, just, just to be careful. Finally, you know, thank you again for the resources you're providing and for just being a resource for families to call 
and share their fear or their frustration. Like you said, you'll take that call every day. How are you doing and how are you managing with everything that's going on? So we're, we're all doing fine. All of us on our team are healthy. And one of the things that's nice, like you and I are communicating now via Zoom, we have Zoom meetings so we can see people's faces, even though we're not in the same room together. It is fun to see. And you could see Dr. Kappel's little child will climb up on her lap while she's there <laughs> meeting. It's just kind of fun. So and just following the same advice, you know, get exercising and it's just amazing how fewer steps you register on your pedometer when you're working from home and getting out and enjoying nature, finding other ways to contact and keep in touch with family members and loved ones. Well, those all sound like great ways to stay active and to pass the time. And, you know, I appreciate everything you're doing and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, well, it's been a joy. Thank you. My thanks again to Karen for providing a glimpse at how TSC clinics are adapting to the current reality. This is happening across the country as healthcare providers and researchers are shifting to telemedicine even more to stay connected with their patients. This topic was explored in depth during our second town hall, held in partnership with the Child Neurology Foundation and Dupe 15Q Alliance titled Accessibility to Care During COVID-19. Here's a clip from that presentation of Dr. Elizabeth Thiel sharing how she believes the changes we are seeing now in care may end up continuing on even after the COVID-19. Again, I do think this will, will change medicine going forward, and I think in not all bad ways. It is really nice for families to not have to travel hours to come to a visit when the same the same information, the same level of care, the same interaction can occur virtually. I encourage you to check out the rest of that presentation, which provides more information on how doctors and researchers are providing care in the face of COVID-19. We will continue to host webinars every week throughout May, so please check out our website for the upcoming schedule. Our next town hall will be on May 1st, It will be held in partnership with the Dravet Syndrome Foundation and the Lennox-Gastaut Syndrome Foundation and focus on accessibility to treatment during COVID-19. I'll post a link to the schedule and a link to register for the upcoming town hall in the show description. That'll do it for this month's episode of TSC Now. My thanks again to our sponsors, Greenwich Biosciences, Novartis Pharmaceuticals, Upshur Smith Laboratories, and Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. I'd like to end this episode with an important message from TS Alliance President and CEO, Kari Luther Rosbeck. Next week marks the start of May and TSC Awareness Month, and this year we need your help. All of us at the TS Alliance are committed to continuing to push our mission forward, but we can't do it without you. Here's Kari with more. It's Kari Rosbeck, President and CEO of the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance. I wanted to give you a little update and tell you a little bit about some plans we have for May, TSD Awareness Month. I hope that you've really been enjoying the expanded digital tools that we've been providing to all of you during COVID-19. We're really proud of the webinars the town halls that we've done in partnership with with other advocacy organizations and the open forums that have allowed you to share the kind of issues that you're facing at home while we're all quarantined. 
We know that this is a really difficult time for everyone, and we want you to know that the TS Alliance is here for you. Uh, as you may know, we have had to reschedule and postpone all of our spring events. It's really hard to talk about because we just really want to be there for you. But this has left us with a, a big gap in revenue, about $700,000. And that revenue helps us fund research, keep research moving forward. It helps us provide for community programs and make sure that we keep the lights on, literally, and our staff intact. And we really need your help to make sure that when we come out of quarantine, we are not years behind in research and that we can provide the excellence in community service that you deserve. So I have a special appeal um, for you today. TSC Awareness Month is May and we have a new campaign, TSC Awareness Month of Caring. And we'd love to partner with you on a couple of initiatives. So first off, for those that would like to make a donation, you can go to the link that's going to be associated with this post. You can start a Facebook fundraiser throughout the month of May. If everybody just did a little fundraiser and raised $50, we would be doing much more amazing work and be able to continue our amazing work in research and community programs. Uh, we're also taking part in the Giving Tuesday Now. So that is a one-day global campaign. It usually happens in November, Giving Tuesday, but in response to COVID-19 and, and the fact that all charities are, are kind of hurting right now, we're going to be participating on May 5th in Giving Tuesday Now. So if you don't want to raise money all through the month of May for the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance, you could do it for one day. Um, you can also do something really, really special, and that is purchase your TSC Global Awareness Day shirts and lots of merchandise through the TSC Swag Store. And for fun, we have Facebook frames that you can upload your picture in to raise awareness. And we have the hashtag WearBlueChallenge, and hang tight for that because I've already participated. So um, I challenge you. If we are able to raise $30,000 together through our Facebook challenge, I will dye my hair blue and come back on and do a video. Um, I love the TS Alliance so much. I have dedicated the majority of my professional career to all of you. Um, I love this community and this is a difficult time. I know it's a difficult time for all of you, and we're here for you. Dina said in her telecommuting Tuesdays, just call me. And I mean that too. Just call us. We're here. And if we join in solidarity, we will get through this. We will weather the storm forever. Hashtag TSC strong. Hashtag unite for TSC. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.